We're continuing this morning uh, reading through the the book of Acts. We are in chapter 1, and the scripture reading begins at verse 12. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now for the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us anew and afresh to give us spiritual wisdom and insight. We pray that you would illumine our minds, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might receive your word and be built up in true faith to the glory of your name through Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. It is written. Then they, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas Iscariot, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Peter continuing, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. After Jesus' ascension into heaven, the 11 remaining apostles returned to Jerusalem to wait for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there was a 10-day interim between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the day of Pentecost. And 
during that 10-day period, the 11 remaining apostles, together with other believers, gathered together in the place called the upper room, perhaps the very same place in which the apostles had celebrated the Passover with Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper on uh, the night when he was betrayed. And Luke lists for us the name of these 11 remaining apostles with the name of Judas Iscariot being conspicuously absent. And Luke tells us that with one accord they were devoting themselves to prayer. And that means that these apostles during this interim period, believed that prayer was their number one priority. It was the most important thing for them to do. And they were of one accord. They were united in heart and mind and soul in their prayer. And it is reasonable to suggest that most likely they were praying in eager anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were praying expectantly for what Jesus had promised, which, by the way, is the biblical way to pray. Prayer is asking God for the things that He has promised in his word. Sometimes we get mixed up. The apostles might have said, oh, well, you know, Jesus told us that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, so he's going to send the Holy Spirit, so we don't have to worry about that. We'll just kind of sit around and wait for him to send the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. I mean, that kind of human logic is, is Satan's logic. We pray for that which God has promised. They were eager. They were expectant. And it is reasonable to suggest that they were likely praying that they themselves would be ready to receive the Spirit, that they would be prepared vessels for the indwelling Spirit, and that they would then respond as obedient servants in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's great expectation expressed in fervent prayer with one accord. Luke also mentions the women who had been followers of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke likewise mentions the important role that the faithful women played in during Jesus' earthly ministry. But in particular, at verse 14, Luke is careful to note Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was among that first fellowship of believers in Jerusalem, gathered together with the apostles. Now, her presence there indicates a couple of things worth noting. First of all, Mary, the mother of Jesus, gathered with the apostles and the other believers as a believer herself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Her son was her savior. And she was a member of the church. She was not set apart from them in a special position over them, but along with the others and under the leadership of the apostles, Mary lived as a member of that fellowship and joined in prayer with them and a life 
of discipleship. But I do think that Luke, by making this particular note, is in a way showing a respect for Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there. Now, secondly, I want you to think about this with me. Mary's presence with them there in the upper room stands as a reminder to us of the true reality of the humanity of Jesus. She gave birth to him. I know that sounds so obvious, but the point is that her presence there in the company of the apostles, there she is, his mother, was living proof, you see, that Jesus was not a ghost. Jesus, who had ascended into heaven, was not a spirit in the guise of a man not an angelic being, not an apparition, but a real man of human flesh and blood. Mary's humanity confirmed Jesus' humanity. Reminding the apostles, reminding us that He, the Son of God, and the only mediator between God and man having taken upon himself our human nature, was fully suited to be the Savior of sinners. He was one who, as a man of flesh and blood, born of woman, could share in all of our infirmities and our weaknesses. And as a man, as the second Adam, as our representative head, he could bear in his own body our sins upon the tree and pay the debt of human sin and rise again in His human body to give life, glorified, human, eternal life to all who trust in Him. That's the fullness of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies His body was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was glorified. And that is the assurance that our bodies laid in the dust will be raised and glorified for life eternal with Him forever. Luke also mentions that Jesus' brothers were there among the half Brothers were James, the author of the letter of James, and Jude, the author of the New Testament letter. (laughs) Interesting, both of whom began to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah of Israel only after the resurrection. John tells us in chapter 7 that his brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry, but In that 40-day period following his resurrection before his ascension, as you know, Jesus appeared to many people, and James and uh, Jude both were witnesses of his resurrection. 
Now, in this passage, we see that from the beginning, the true church of Jesus Christ was a gathered body. The apostles and the other believers were gathered with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. The believers shared life, worship, and prayer together, and, and more on that in the weeks to come. But, but the point here we see from the very beginning, true Christian faith, though it is a matter of individual faith, it is not individualistic. You hear Pastor Jonathan and I say this quite commonly, and because we're pushing against not only the culture of this world, but the culture of American Christianity, we're pushing back against it because there's no such thing in Scripture as an isolated, individualistic Christian who lives apart from the church, the body of Christ. Contrary to much of popular Christianity in America today, in the New Testament, you will not find an individual believer who is not a participating member of a specific, particular congregation under the leadership of either the apostles in the early part of the, this first century or the elders from thereafter. You see, a great mistake of American Christianity because of our individualism to an extreme degree the culture in which we lived and the, the air we breathe, uh, the is the mistaken notion, you see, that Christianity is merely a matter of a belief system or, or a list of doctrines to which you give intellectual assent or as though it were an individual personal philosophy or an uh, individual moral code by which you seek to, seek to live or a spiritual practice that you um, engage in on your own without a real-life commitment to and participation in the body of Christ in a local congregation. And it's a, tra it's a tragedy. But those who say that they are Christians, but also say that they don't need the church, well, they either really haven't read much of the New Testament or don't understand much of it, or perhaps may not be truly Christian at all. Because in the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ is referred to as a body, a household, a family, a flock, a spiritual temple, a fellowship, a communion, all of which refer to a corporate unity of believers rather than isolated people individualistically disconnected from one another. So practically, that's the reason that it's so important, especially as we continue to deal with the restrictions of the pandemic, that we as a congregation continue to connect with one another as best as we can, caring for one another, praying with and for one another, reaching out to one another, demonstrating our love for one another with tangible expressions of our unity in Christ. Unity in Christ means community in Christ. Unity in Christ means community in Christ. Now, as we just move through this passage, 
Next, we find that at some point in the 10-day interim between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the day of Pentecost yet to come, Peter stood up in the gathering. There were about 120 people total. You know, by today's standards in America, it doesn't seem like a very big church, does it? But that's the little seed in Jerusalem of the first century. And Peter began to speak about the need to replace Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. You know, Judas Iscariot had been one of the original 12 apostles. Jesus had many, 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 many disciples, many followers, but he designated 12 as apostles to serve as his special representatives. But due to Judas's gruesome suicide after he betrayed Jesus, Instead of 12, there were now only 11, and that mattered because the 12 apostles represented the 12 tribes of Israel, not in a literal genealogical way, but in a symbolic, spiritual way, a real way. So we need to get this point here. Why, why did Luke include this? The 12 apostles chosen and designated by Jesus were the foundation of the new covenant Israel, corresponding symbolically to the 12 tribes of old covenant Israel. This is the transition, part of the transition from the old covenant into the new covenant, the fuller light of God's covenant with his people through Jesus Christ. These apostles, you see, together with all the believers in Christ in the earliest days of the church, were Jews who believed in and received Jesus as the Messiah. You know, as strange as it may sound to us today, these first believers had no concept whatsoever. They had no concept whatsoever. They had no category whatsoever of a new religion named Christianity. That was the furthest thing from their mind. They were simply Jews who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah in whom all the promises of God for the salvation of Israel and the redemption of the world had been fulfilled. They received him. And they therefore were the remnant of true Israel, which was being regathered, restored, reconstituted, as the new covenant people of God, the spiritually renewed true Israel through faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And therefore, Peter explained that Judas's place among the apostles must be filled so that the 12 tribes, symbolically and spiritually, but really, for the case of the new covenant Israel, would be re represented. The new covenant Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. And then Peter began, continued to set forth the qualifications of the office of the apostle. 
He had to have been among the followers of Jesus from the very beginning, from the time that Jesus had been baptized by John until the day of his ascension. So he had to have been a a faithful disciple of Jesus throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry. Secondly, he had to be an eyewitness of Jesus after his resurrection. He had seen Jesus risen from the dead, and he had to have the special calling and commission of Christ himself. So among those first believers, there were at least two men who met that criteria, Justice and Matthias, who, by the way, are not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture before or after this passage. And though never mentioned in the Gospels, you see, they had been disciples of Jesus during his ministry, receiving his teaching, believing in him as the Messiah, and they were among the many people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. But when it came time to select one of them, it was not a matter of human decision. Peter did not have the authority to appoint the next apostle, and it wasn't up to the other apostles simply to vote Only the Lord could make this appointment. And so they prayed, and listen to the precise wording of this prayer. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So in this very specific and particular instance of filling the apostleship vacated by Judas, the apostles casts lot, cast lots using marked stones, probably shaking them in a box and rolling them out of the box. This was an Old Testament practice, which evidently was discontinued by Christians after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You never read about it again in the New Testament. And there's no other instance of casting lots in the New Testament. There's no instruction for Christians today to do so. Today, we have the written scriptures and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us in our decisions. It is also the case that we will not be making any decisions that fit the category of replacing an apostle. But when the lot was cast, it fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the others for a total of 12, again, symbolically corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel for the apostolic foundation of the new covenant Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. The apostolic foundation of the church was and is extremely important. Let's just hit on some very important principles here. It shows us that the church of Jesus Christ is not just another merely human organization of merely human origin. Jesus chose and appointed the 12 apostles, including Matthias now, as his own authoritative representatives and emissaries in the world. The apostles, or those who served as their penmen, were the authors of divinely inspired scripture. For example, Mark was the penman of the apostle Peter, and Luke was the companion of the apostle Paul. And let me say again that these apostles 
were designated by Christ to be his authoritative representatives and spokesmen in the world. So as we, you know, every now and then you bump into somebody who might say something like, well, you know, I think Jesus was, I like Jesus a lot, but I really don't care for the Apostle Paul. I'm sorry to say you may hear things like that every now and again. That person does not understand the New Testament at all because Jesus Christ called and commissioned the apostles whose writings we have in the New Testament to communicate his word to us. So everything that the apostles wrote in the New Testament is the word of Jesus Christ. They had a unique role and place in church history in the first century as the foundational leaders of the church. In, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That's the imagery of the church as a living spiritual temple. The New Testament tells us that the ministry and authority of the apostles were confirmed by, quote, signs and wonders and various miracles. That's in Hebrews 2.4. And we read about the apostles working signs and wonders and various miracles in the book of Acts. We'll get there. The apostle Paul likewise affirmed his apostolic ministry by writing to the Corinthians, saying, quote, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, confirming that the apostles were working with the direct power of Jesus Christ. And so the point is today, we do not look for, we do not follow, we do not get excited about people who claim to work supernatural signs wonders, and miracles, or who claim to have new supernatural revelation from God. Of course, yes, we pray for God himself to work with supernatural power in remarkable ways for his own glory as he pleases. Yes, we pray for that, but we put no faith in particular individuals who claim to be miracle workers. Yes, we pray for the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds so that we may gain better spiritual wisdom and insight from the Scriptures. But we do not look beyond the Scriptures for some new revelation or some supposedly new prophetic word. We submit ourselves to the authority of the apostles under the authority of Jesus Christ by submitting ourselves to the written word of Scripture, which is the word of Christ. But we do not submit ourselves to anyone who claims to be a modern-day apostle. There are no modern-day apostles. The apostles of the first century laid the foundation of the church with the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's a very good thing to know. That's a very good thing to know. It gives us great security. They did not get it wrong. They did not misrepresent Jesus Christ. They did not fail to tell us something we needed to know. We don't have to wonder 
and, or, or seek for something new to tell us about what we need to believe about God in Jesus Christ and how are we to live in relationship with Him. No. The apostles were the ones to whom and through whom divine revelation was given by the Holy Spirit. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus said to His apostles, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will take what is mine, that is Christ's word, and declare it to you. Now, on the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus was saying this to the apostles, he was authorizing the apostles to write the New Testament, his word, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When the apostles and their penmen wrote the documents of the New Testament, they wrote with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. That is the reason that for the true Christian church, there is no further divine revelation beyond the Scriptures. To be an apostolic church is to be a church built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which means being a church built upon the divinely inspired Scriptures, and that's who we want to be, for there's no other true church than one with this foundation. And the Holy Spirit at work in our lives today leads us into the truth as we submit ourselves to the truth of the Word written by the apostles through the inspiration of the Spirit. Now, so here we are today in Monroe, Louisiana, or wherever you may be in Internet land, in 2021. We didn't get here by accident as Christians. You see, because we're here as Christians because since his ascension into heaven and the consequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ has been building his church on the foundation of the apostles for more than 2,000 years all over the world and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. The worldwide church of Jesus Christ built upon the foundation of the apostles is the imperfect, yes, imperfect, but visible kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Built upon the foundation of the apostles, the church is the now not yet perfect, not yet perfect city of the living God on earth. Built upon the foundation of the apostles, the church of Jesus Christ is the household of God, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. The church of Jesus Christ is the outpost of heaven on earth. And most gloriously, the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ, His beloved, for whom He died and for whom He will come again to receive and to present to Himself in splendor without spot or blemish. So the question is, what is your first identity? What is your first identity as a citizen of the United States of America or as a citizen of of the one church, the new covenant Israel of Jesus Christ, the holy nation. 
His holy nation comprised of people of all the nations of the world redeemed by His blood. As a citizen of this world or a citizen of heaven, the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God, the city of the world or the city of God, the heavenly Zion on earth awaiting the return of the king. As we shall sing in the closing hymn, a hymn about the joy and triumph of being a member of Christ's church now and forever through true faith in Him. Having having been called out of the world, out of darkness and into His marvelous light, into His household, into His family, into His kingdom, we will sing, Savior, If of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. What a blessing. What a blessing to be a member of the apostolic church of Jesus Christ through faith in Him. Saved by His grace, redeemed by His blood, claimed as His own, loved everlastingly, and destined for glory together with Him. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your wonderful love, your mercy, your grace, and your power that you have called us to be your people in your Son, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters adopted in him. Help us to live joyfully, faithfully, cheerfully, courageously as we await his coming in glory. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I invite you now to stand as we affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and